Well, for those of you who are regular attenders here, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Those of you who are regulars are probably thinking we're going to look at Mark chapter 7 because when I left two or three, well, Janice, it's good to see you. How's Terry? And you? Okay. We prayed for you before the service. I mean, before this, good to see you here. Okay, so here's the deal. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark one chapter a week, and every week there's an assignment, and you are supposed to go home and during the week read that next chapter. And so if you're following along that plan, you came this morning already well-read in Mark chapter 7, but I'm going to just ask you just hang on to Mark chapter 7 till next week because we're going to do something a, a little bit different. This morning I want, to, I want to share with you some... We don't have enough time for me to share everything, but I want to share with you some of what it is that I do when I'm not here at Crosspoint on the weekends, when I'm with my other job, when I'm traveling around the world teaching and training pastors who live in faraway places. And since Sharon and I just returned last two days ago, we got back on Friday afternoon on a trip back from Africa, and... Uh, most of the time I travel alone, but Sharon has been able to go with me the last couple trips, and so I'm grateful for that. I, I want to give you an update on where I've been recently and, and just help you understand what it is that I really do when I'm not here. So <clears throat> let's back up and get a running head start at this. For those of you who don't know our whole story, let me share part of that story as well. Sharon and I met in Worthington, Minnesota. Correct? I've still got that part right. So we met in Worthington, Minnesota after we had both graduated from college. Sharon had just graduated with a Bible degree from Oak Hills Bible College in Bemidji, Minnesota. And I had just graduated from Minnesota State University at Mankato, which we commonly referred to as Harvard of the Midwest. Some of you will get that joke. And uh, I graduated with a degree in business. And even though we lived 12 miles apart, and only 12 miles apart, uh, we had never met until we were both done with college. And so we spent, we got married, fell in love, got married, all those things. Well, no, wait a minute. I said that in the wrong order. We met, fell in love, and then got married. I think what I had said was we got married, met, and fell in love. So we had the order right. And after 14 years in the business world, which was good, I would say 14 years in the business world is a, just a great place to fall in love with people and to deal with the real world. But we felt God was calling us, asking us to leave the business world behind and go to ministry. So we did that. In the fall of 1989, we moved from Worthington to Sioux Falls so I could begin attending Sioux Falls Seminary. Now, at the time we made that move, our daughter Melissa was going into eighth grade and our son Jeremy was going into fifth grade. So when we talk about changing your life, it wasn't just me. It wasn't just me changing my life. We were all changing our lives. We were uprooting, sharing, you know, her life was going to change, my life was going to change. I'd been on my own in business for 14 years. To go to seminary, it required that not only am I going to go full-time to seminary, I was working full-time nights at Citibank trying to get through and 
and I think survive is the right word there. And our kids all had to make new friends, and Sharon had to make new friends. And my second year in seminary, I began pastoring a little church just north of Del Rapids that had relied on student pastors from the seminary for the 20 years before I got there. And so I did that for an entire year. Boy, that was a wake-up call for them and for me. And, but it was a great experience, and we fell in love with those people there. And my third year, I did that for one year, and then my third year in seminary, I was invited to be the discipleship pastor of a church here in Sioux Falls. And so I did that for the third year, and that allowed me to quit my job at Citibank, which was kind of a hallelujah. I loved Citibank, and it was all good. Trey, I, I want you to know I loved Citibank. And Trey's there now. I kind of paved the way for Trey to come 25 years later. But uh, it's too bad we were never there together. Would have been fun. But when I took that position as a discipleship pastor, I quit my job at Citibank. And then I stayed at that church for uh, three years. And then the phone rang one day, and it was the seminary. I had become friends with the president of the seminary. He and I were the same age when I was going to seminary. I was there as a second career guy. And... Uh, Chuck and I became good friends, and he offered me a position to join the staff at the seminary. And uh, so I did that, and when I did that, I guess we thought, well, we were going to stay in Sioux Falls, and that would have been the position at the seminary. A lot of guys would look forward to that and think, well, that's, you know, that's the rest of my career. And so it was good. I felt like I represented God in the seminary, and they had me traveling all over the country representing the school in their denomination churches, and so... I did that for three years, and then in 1990, no, yeah, 1997, the phone rang again. Which, by the way, all these little times when I tell you the phone rang again, there's a story behind, I wish I could, if you wouldn't want to leave until like four or five this afternoon, I could give you more details, but I can't tell you this, but uh, we don't have time. But I, I was uh, invited to candidate for the position of senior pastor at a place called Faith Baptist Church in Hampton, Iowa. Hampton, Iowa is 30 miles directly south of Mason City. And so we moved to Hampton, Iowa, a town of 4,000. And uh, there's been a lot of days since 1997. I wish that we had still lived in Hampton, Iowa. It was, we had, I tell you, it was nothing but a blessing every day, one day after the next. Um, we were there for... Eight years. And in that eight years, we had four building programs. We just couldn't keep up. The Lord just kept bringing people and people and people. And the last building program was in year number six. We built a 500-seat sanctuary, and there were Sundays when it was full. And we thought that we were going to live there until Jesus comes back. We had no reason to leave. And as far as we knew, everybody in the church loved us. And then in 2005, the phone rang again. And... Uh, it was a church on the west side of Minneapolis uh, wanting to know if I would consider serving as the senior pastor of their church. Now, there's a lot of conversation that goes on in between all that, but that church on the west side of Minneapolis was a daughter church called Oakwood Church. Of a, it was a, one of nine daughter churches that this big mega church in Minneapolis had developed a pattern of planting daughter churches all over the metro area. Wooddale Church in Eden Prairie, if you've never heard of it or ever heard of it. And uh, it's kind of a cute thing. They have nine daughter churches from Wooddale, and all the churches have wood in their name. So there's Oakwood, Westwood, Northwood, Bridgewood, Timberwood, 
At one time, I could name all nine of those, but there's too many things. We spent 10 years in Waconia and again had the time of our life, and the Lord continued to bless beyond anything that, that I had ever deserved. And, but after 10 wonderful years, in August of 2015, we retired. Now, let me say this very slow. We retired from full-time pastoring. Let me clarify this. I am not retired. Sharon keeps asking me, when are you going to retire? And our daughter keeps asking me, when are you going to retire? The only thing I've retired from is full-time pastoring. And my main ministry now, and that's what I want to tell you about, my main ministry now is teaching and training pastors who live in places around the world where formal theological education is either limited or non-existent. Now, let me tell you what it's like in a nutshell around the world. America has one trained pastor for every 300 people that live in America. Just think of that. We are spoiled beyond anything we can imagine. Africa, a poppy could tell us this, Africa has one trained pastor for every 400,000 people. So just picture the difference. We now work with a mission organization called New Horizons in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and our particular ministry is called, and you may have seen this, or I may have said this before, our ministry is called Project 1-8. And it's based on the last words that Jesus spoke before he went back to heaven. It's recorded for us in where? Acts 1-8. That's why we call our ministry Project 1-8, where Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm convinced if Jesus were standing in Sioux Falls instead of Jerusalem, if he'd been standing in Sioux Falls just before he went back to heaven, he would have said something like this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Sioux Falls and all across South Dakota and the United States and to the ends of the earth. He uses four geographic locations, and each one is just a bigger circle than the previous one. Pastors and church leaders around the world love Jesus just as much as we love Jesus here in America. It's no different. But many pastors and church leaders in other countries have little or no opportunity for formal education. And it is not uncommon, and I've met guys like this, it's not uncommon in many foreign countries for someone to become a pastor with no formal Bible training whatsoever. It's almost like going back to first century Christianity where the Apostle Paul comes through town, people put their faith in Christ, He leaves, somebody else is in charge of that church. And God honored that. And that's what it's like many places. So for the last four years, since August of 2015, it's been both a, for me, it's been a uh, blessing and a privilege to invest this next chapter of my life in doing something that I believe matters for eternity. I've had the privilege to teach and train pastors and church leaders in a variety of places around the world, but my primary focus right now, and we've got a map of this, my primary focus right now is to train and teach pastors and church leaders in the Philippines and in Ukraine and in Zambia. That's where my focus is now. That's where I've been in the last nine months. I've made five trips around the world. And... uh, 
this trip home from Africa, this last trip was brutal. Okay, everybody knows what brutal is. It takes 23 hours of flying to get from Zambia back to Sioux Falls. So, I am totally convinced that the nations of the world will never become fully devoted followers of Jesus until we learn how to make disciples. And that's a big part of what I'm involved in doing when I'm gone from here. I'm training pastors who can then train the people in their churches to train other people. It's not just training a pastor so they can lead the church. It's training a pastor so they can make disciples and those disciples can turn around and make more disciples. Now let me tell you, I'm going to tell you a little story about each of these three places that I go to. The one place that I go to quite often is the Philippines. The Philippines, it's home to 100 million people living on 7,000 islands. It's a, it's a whole nation of islands. I, I don't know how you count to get to 7,000, and it's not an exact number, but there are 7,000 plus islands that make up the Philippines. That whole island nation is approximately 800 miles east of Vietnam. I've discovered this, that American soldiers first began using army jeeps in the Philippines just a few months before World War II. When the war was over, we left all those jeeps behind. And the people living in the Philippines fell in love with those jeeps. Now I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. Today, the jeepney, as they call it, the jeepney, there you go. It's one of the most popular forms of public transportation in the Philippines. Now, if you look closely, the front of the vehicle still looks like an old World War II army jeep, but the rear of the jeep has been modified for carrying people. There are literally thousands, there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of these jeepneys in the Philippines, and apparently, I want you to see these slides, apparently there's no laws regulating how many people can ride in each jeepney. When the seats are full inside, you're welcome to sit on top. Or you can hang on to the back and you can bring things with you. So let me tell you about an experience I had in the Philippines. Um, on a recent trip, I paid my seven pesos, which was the price of my ticket, and that gets me a place either to stand on the back or to sit on a chair, a seat. There's two parallel benches in the back and people face each other. I got on the jeepney and after a minute or two, the jeepney made a stop and a woman from the Philippines climbed in, and I can still picture this today. She climbed in carrying a bag of groceries and she sat directly across from me. Now, I've discovered this. For a guy like me, and God wired me like this, it's always more fun for me to talk to people on the jeepney than it is to just sit there quietly. So I said something to her like this. I said, so you've been out shopping this morning and I suppose you're on your way home. And she politely said, no, I'm not going home. I'm on my way to the cemetery. She said, I go to the cemetery four or five times a year to put food on the graves of my parents and grandparents. I try to go on each of their birthdays and on their wedding anniversaries, and each time I go, I leave a bag of groceries. Now, I had never heard anything like that before. 
I've heard a lot of strange things. Most of the strange things I've heard, I've heard in South Dakota. Okay, so it isn't that there's just strange things when you leave South Dakota. But I'd never heard anything quite like that. I've since come to understand that there are many, there are millions of people in the Philippines who do similar things. And this place where I go in the Philippines to do ministry, less than 1%, less than 1% of the people living there are evangelical Christians. Let me say that again. Less than 1% are Christians. The other 99% of the people who live where I go, and I've been there four or five times now, are a combination of all kinds of things. And so, let's see the next one, Trey. I think this is the class. That's the last class I had there of the it's a, it's a two-week class, and it's always at night because almost every pastor in the Philippines is bivocational. They have another job in the real world, and then their only opportunity for training. So what has amazed me is um, who comes to the classes. Whoever shows up, I'll teach, okay? There's no, there's no, we don't have a denomination thing. We just open the New Testament, and that's where we go to work. And uh, you'll see there's a couple older guys. There's one guy about my age in the middle of that picture. And then there's some younger guys who are still older. But for some reason, that last class attracted a lot of young people. And it attracted a lot of women who are youth pastors and children's pastors and worship pastors. But they don't have any opportunity for formal Bible training. So here we have this, this whole part of this world... And if I had time, I could tell you about all these guys, I mean, the, the stuff they do during the week just so they can have the time to come and get some training. And they're really paying a price. But God still loves the people in the Philippines, even though there's less than 1% are Christians because John 3, 16 and 17 is still true. For God so loved the world, including the people who live in the Philippines, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. When I was in the Philippines last February, I taught a two-week class on the general epistles. Okay? Now, let's turn the page. Second place I go to quite often is the Ukraine. In the last year and a half, I've been to the Ukraine two times. My primary responsibility in Ukraine is to teach Bible classes at a place called Odessa Theological Seminary in the city of Odessa. Odessa is there on the northwest corner of the Black Sea. It's the fourth largest city in Ukraine with a population of just over a million people. You might remember in February of 2014... The Russian army and the Ukrainian army went to war with each other. And I, in my memory, I, I don't remember dates and times and places, but I was actually in Moscow on my way back from teaching trip in Siberia, which is another story. But I spent two or three days staying at Moscow Theological Seminary. They allowed me to use the guest room there. And while we were watching the Winter Olympics... In Russian, of course, I couldn't understand anything. Everybody in the room's cheering for the Russians, and I'm the only guy cheering for the United States. They understood that, so we all laughed about that. And all of a sudden, war breaks out on the border between Ukraine and Russia. 
And it's been that way. That fighting is still going on. In both of my last two classes in Odessa, there have been Russian pastors who have taken advantage of the opportunity. And there was two guys that drove 800 miles from Russia, crossed the border into Ukraine so they could take a class at the seminary. Now here I want to tell you a story about the sovereignty of God. In fact, I just now broke out in goosebumps. I, I mean, if I was going to, I couldn't, I couldn't design, I couldn't make up a story like this. We have five grandkids, three grandsons and two granddaughters. One of our grandsons was adopted from a town in Russia, which I, I know the name of the town, Nishni Navragad. And I've never been there. But in the class, that, and Sharon was with me. That was her first trip with me to the Ukraine in either March or April, when we were gone from here. And uh, most of the guys in that class are from Ukraine. But there's always Russian guys in the class as well. And I said, um, I asked if any of the Russian pastors there had ever heard of this city, Nishni Navragad. And now, here's what I want to tell you. Who but God if, it's almost amazing the people who say God doesn't exist, and it's all just coincidence. Well, I'll tell you, there's a few words that I have taken out of my vocabulary, and I would encourage you to take it and stop using those words because those words aren't true. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Okay, so going forward from this moment, raise your right hand, we will never use the word coincidence again. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as an accident. There's no such thing as, it just happened. No, it doesn't just happen. Okay? God is in absolute control. Scott, amen? He's in absolute control of everything that happens. I asked these Russian pastors, have you ever heard of this town, Nishni Navragad? I said, our grandson was born in that town, and now he lives in the United States. And one guy said, I'm from that town. Now, who but God could orchestrate details like that so that there, what I'm there for, were we there for two weeks teaching this class, that there's a pastor from that town where our grandson was born. I mean, it's a God thing. I want to show you the picture of the class in, oh, there we are. If you can't find me, I'm the good-looking one right in the middle there. Sharon's there with her winter coat on. And the guy right next to me, right here, is from that town where our grandson was born. When I was there, they had asked me six months before I went, they said, Steve, we want you to create a new class for new pastors. And the title for the class, they said, I can, it, it has to be something like this, Pastoral Ministry, what is it? Oh, man, it was, it was wonderful. We had a, such a wonderful time helping these young pastors and, and church leaders and worship leaders. There's a couple ladies in there that were worship pastors in their church. And just understanding what is pastoral ministry and what is it that you, you say God is calling you to be a pastor. Do you understand what it is he's calling you to do? So that was great. The last place I want to talk about this morning is Zambia. And that's where we just came back from last Friday. Zambia is a thousand miles south of the equator. So when Sharon and I were just there, now, they're on the other side of the world. Africa's on the other side of the world, and they're a 1,000 miles south of the equator. So today, while it's summertime here, and if you don't think it's summertime, just go outside for a minute, it's, it's their wintertime. 
okay? 40 degrees at night, 60 degrees, maybe 55 degrees, the high for the day. It was absolutely beautiful. But in a minute, not yet, I don't think, but in a minute, we're going to show you the class, in, uh, the class I had. 25 pastors came and uh, studied in our class. And I'll tell you, you'll notice that when we take the picture, there's some guys, a number of guys, that are wearing stocking caps and gloves. And it wasn't uncommon, and I'm not being disrespectful for these pastors at all, but it was so cold, they're wearing winter coats, stocking caps, and gloves in class for the whole four or five hours that we're together every day. It's just, and I, are you kidding me? I can't take enough clothes on, off. I'm ready to wear shorts, and, but I can't do that when I'm teaching there at the school. So I've been to Zambia four times, and Lord willing, I'm going to go back <clears throat> many more times. The, with the place I teach, and there's another sovereignty of God, how my name and that position got connected, but it's a pastor training school where pastors come from four countries and they can spend up to four years there receiving Bible training. They come from Zambia, Malawi, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe. And so in my class of 25 guys, there were guys there from three different countries. In a perfect world, these 25 guys will stay for the whole four years. And, uh, you know, in America, in our college system, we have, you know, the supposedly the easier classes are first, and then you go back to sophomore and junior, senior, they get a little more difficult. It's not, it's not like that, but there's enough Bible classes and variety that it takes four years if you want to stay there in a perfect world. And so um, each class is two weeks long. We start at 8.30 in the morning. We end at 3 in the afternoon. The whole property is 300 acres. There was a woman living in that part of Zambia, which we are two hours or an hour and a half east of the capital city of Lusaka. Opapia knows where that's at. And uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It is in the middle of nowhere. Um, no electricity. We have solar-powered electricity. So if the sun is shining today, then tomorrow we can have the light bulbs on in the class if the sun shines today. It also works that way with the showers. There's no hot water heaters. So they have solar-powered hot water heaters. So if the sun shines today, the first couple guys in the showers tomorrow get hot water. And there's 100 pastors there in training. And so maybe 10 of us get hot showers and the other 90 get cold showers. Now, I may have told you this, this one story, but when I was... I don't know what I was doing that one time I answered questions. Was I candidating? Whatever that was called. The amazing thing, if you're there in the, when it isn't raining, it's the dry season, there's these big green frogs the size of your hand that like to come in the shower with you. Okay, it's, it's an outdoor shower. You, some of you, are, I can see the expression on your face. You should all come with me next time. These big green frogs, this big. And the first day that happened, I, was, I thought, what is that down here on my feet? I've got my you know, soap in my eyes, how most guys are like that. And uh, almost every day, these big green frogs come in the shower with you. Well, they don't bite, and they're harmless. But the thing is, just outside the shower rooms, there's big snakes that like to eat those big green frogs. So it keeps you on your toes when you're going back to your room. Anyway. And I've been there four times, and two of those times I, I could tell you snake stories, but we won't. So, uh, 
The school is located on a 300-acre piece of property that was donated to this school if they would come and build a training center for pastors. So the pastors come to class Monday through Friday, and we meet for, I can't do the math, I think that's 25 hours a week they're in class. And then each pastor is required to work 20 hours a week or 25 hours a week on the 300 acres. So they've got this huge garden. They've got poultry barns with hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of chickens. They do building maintenance. There's 100 guys, 25 guys in each class. It's all men. Uh, it's been an absolute blessing for me to be there and to use my time and gifts in, in teaching those guys who have, if it wasn't for guys that are willing to come. Some of their professors are full-time professors that have graduated from that school and then earned a scholarship to come and study at a Bible college here in the United States, and now they've gone back and they're teaching there. I think they have to give a five-year commitment to go back and teach there. The rest of the whole faculty is guys like me who are willing to go and travel and raise money for our funds so we can get there and get back. So <clears throat> it's been a blessing. I, I, I don't want to... I just have... One more thing I want to share with you, and then we'll... When I was there, we... Uh... You don't care if I take a couple more minutes. Take your Bible. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. When I was there, and the thing they've asked me to teach every year is the pastoral epistles. And... Uh... which I do, and I love teaching. Pastoral epistles are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And we spend at least one day, sometimes two days, comparing 1 Timothy chapter 3 with Titus chapter 1, which those of you who are familiar with that, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 is where the Apostle Paul gives the list of qualities for people who are qualified to serve as church leaders. And if we have people serving as leaders who don't have these qualities in their life, the Apostle Paul, the first thing he'd say, well, they're not qualified to lead. A church needs to have the right people in place to lead. And so Paul goes in. Now, here's it. Let me just share a couple things from my heart. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 are very similar. But here's my question. If Paul gives this list of qualities to this young pastor named Timothy... He says, these are the qualities you should look for in leaders. And then over here, he gives a list of qualities to this young pastor named Titus, who's on the island of Crete. Now, one question that goes through my mind is, how come these are different lists? If these are the qualities we're looking for in 1 Timothy 3, then why is the list different in Titus chapter 1? Now, they're not completely different. There's a lot of overlap but they're not the same. So we deal with that. And then one thing I ask the class to do is come up with two or three more things that you think should be on the list that Paul doesn't put on the list. Sometime I might teach that lesson in Sunday school and then I, I won't give away my answers. But there, I think there's things, I really think there's things that need to be on that list but that aren't on that list. So why, how does that happen? But there's one unique thing that has happened every year of the four years I've been in Zambia. And here's where it is. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now let me just read the first two verses and then we'll quit. This saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which by the way, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon here. Overseer is the same as elder. 
or it's the same as pastor. There, there's, there's no separate list of qualities for elders and then a different set of lists for pastors. It's the same thing. The people who serve as elders and the people who serve as pastors should have the same qualities. And then it goes on to say this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, and we talk about what that means, the husband of one wife. Stop right there. Now, in America, and I'm not even exactly sure what it is here at Crosspoint being the interim guy, but I can tell you that every church, every evangelical church, there's, there's three or four definitions for husband of one wife. Um, Let's just work our way through that. There are some churches who say, well, if you've been married before and now you're married again, that means you're not the husband of one wife. Now you're, you're the husband of two wives, which means some churches will say, that's it. You're not qualified to serve as an elder at our church because you've had two wives. Okay? You see how that follows. How can you be the husband of one wife if you've been married twice? Well, then there's other churches that say, well, now let's just use an example. Maybe you were 20 years old and you weren't a Christian and you married some woman and she wasn't a Christian and you guys got married in about six months. You were fighting day and night and you finally decided to get a divorce and that was the end of that. And now you found Jesus a year after that and you've walked with him for 20 years and now it's a blessing. You're remarried and you've got three, four kids and now you're in church. You're here every Sunday and there are people who say, well, that was all before he became a Christian. And now he's proven to us that he's walking with the Lord for the last 18 years. We remind ourselves that getting a divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And so there are churches that say, well, if it's that kind of situation, yes, you can serve as an elder. Okay? Well, what about... Now, I'm giving you five minutes of what takes five hours over there. But what about the single guy? What about the guy that's not even married? Is he qualified to be an elder? How can he be the husband of one wife if he's not even married? So we have to figure out, what does that mean? And I, my interpretation is that, I can give you to it in South Dakota slang, it's a one-woman man. Okay? In other words, yes, it's possible that you were married before. And for whatever those circumstances are, now you're married to somebody else. That's not the unforgivable sin. And there could be times when we say, yes, it's okay that you serve. And there's going to be other times, based on what happened to that first marriage, we're going to say, no, that you're not going to serve. And there are churches that say, it doesn't matter what happened that first one, you're not going to serve. But what it means is, yes, you're married. But as a married man, you don't walk into the lobby giving all the women hugs and winking at them all during the service. Okay? If you're doing that, you're not qualified to serve. Your focus is on the woman you're married to. And it certainly doesn't disqualify single people, because if it disqualified single people, well then the Apostle Paul would not have been qualified, or Timothy wouldn't have been qualified. They're not even married as far as we know. Okay, so that's all well and good, and we can talk about that here in Crosspoint for the next six hours, but then without failure... Without fail, every time I've taught this class, there's guys in the class that raise their hand and they have this question. What do we do in our church? Now, this is in at, what do we do? Because our pastor has three wives. They don't say he's been married three times. 
They say he has three wives. Now that makes a very interesting conversation when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm not going to tell you what the answer is, but you come to Sunday school this fall, and maybe we'll cover that, because I'm going to start teaching Sunday school starting the second Sunday in September, but Here's what's interesting about the disciples. When, they, when Jesus said to them, I want you to go to the ends of the earth and take the gospel, they went, not on a weekend mission trip, not on a one-week mission trip, not even for guys like me or two or three weeks at a time. They went and they never came back. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas was speared to death in India. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. All the disciples were killed in one way or another except John. He died of old age. After waiting for years before they left Jerusalem, even though Jesus said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, we know from history most of the disciples waited for 20 to 25 years before they went. Let me close with this. I promise my last point. There's 105 people die every minute. Just think about that. There's 105 people die every minute. Since I started preaching, 3,000 people have died somewhere in the world. 3,000. It says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. 105 people die every minute. And according to Matthew 7, 13 and 14, most of those people end up in hell. Because Jesus says, few there are that find it. When I travel to these faraway places to teach and train pastors, I realize, and I want the pastors in my class to realize, that unless people come to faith in Jesus... They have no hope of heaven. None. There's no second chance. You don't go back to go collect $200 and start over again. Unless people put their faith in Jesus, they have no hope of heaven. That's what I want these pastors and church leaders all over the world to understand. It's a, it's a privilege for me to invest my life in what I think is a very important ministry. So thank you for allowing me to share this morning. Next week, we're going to be back on Mark chapter 7. So if you're wondering what to do this week in your spare time, open to Mark chapter 7, and we'll pick up where we left off three weeks ago. Let's close in prayer, and we'll ask the ushers to come, and we'll take this morning's offering. God, we thank you for... Well, God, it's easy for me to thank you for all these guys and these women that have been in my classes for the last 16 trips around the world. And Lord... I just ask that all of the prayers on our behalf would bear good fruit for those people who come to the classes. Lord, even today, there are pastors all over the world who are doing their very best trying to be faithful to the gospel. We thank you for them. We ask, Lord, that you'd care for us until we can come back next week. We thank you for this offering we're about to take. and We ask that you would help us to continue to be good stewards of all that you entrust into our care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.